So welcome, it is great to see you. Thank you, it's great to see you. I cannot imagine writing a hundred novels. That's incredible. I can't imagine it either, given that in high school and most of college, I was a slacker slacker. So I'm not sure what happened to me when I got to be in my late 20s, but I suddenly got productive. I think it was uh, realizing what the alternative was, which was destitution, I guess. Well, you've written a lot of books. Um, I just read your most recent one. I just finished The Galley of um, of Elsewhere. It's It's phenomenal. I absolutely loved it. Tell me, where did the genesis of the story idea for this one come from? You know, sometimes they, uh, you know where it came from, and it, it starts with the premise, something you thought of, something you saw somewhere. And then other times they start with characters, and you have no story to go with them. This is one of those. I, I was doing something else. I wasn't doing anything related to work. Uh, uh, and suddenly it came into my head that I'd never been a story with a father-daughter relationship. It was really positive and, uh, and kind of upbeat and fun to read. I thought, I really want to do that, and uh, someday I'll have to. And the next about 30 seconds later, I thought, what if the father and daughter, the, the mother walked out on them seven years ago, the daughter's now 11, she yearns for the mother, they don't know whatever happened to the mother. Uh, and I thought, well, that now it's starting to get more interesting. And I started getting who these two characters were. And uh, then it suddenly thought, okay, it's going to be a story to some extent about rebuilding this family. And I read a lot of science, uh, quantum mechanics, and anything associated with it has always been an interest of mine. And uh, part of that was the multiverse, the parallel worlds. I never thought I'd write a parallel world story because it get too over the top. Uh, but here I suddenly had a human story of this little broken family. And I thought, I don't know why. This is why it's so mysterious that what we do came into my head. This is a multiverse story, because if you talk about parallel worlds, somewhere the mother lives that they've lost. And this becomes, in part, a search for that mother, which it is. But then it's a lot more uh, beyond that. And when I had that much, then it was... How do they end up going to another parallel world? That in, introduced the characters to be it. And uh, from that moment on, I couldn't wait to get to the people fast enough. I knew how much fun this was going to be. I love family is a wonderful central theme that I think resonates with so many people. So I, um, it's an excellent, excellent novel. So Dean, um, during your illustrious career, You've um, had to weather some challenging feedback um, from certain publishers saying, you know, that you had too many point of views in your book or that you had several different genres in one book. And if there are any newer authors listening today, what advice would you give them? What rules should they break and what rules shouldn't they? Wow. I tend to break almost all of them if I want. Uh, I don't know that I recommend that, but I will say this. Uh, I'm going to write about a memoir about this career, not naming names so much as just discussing things that happened in the course of it. Because some of it's pretty funny and a lot of it's pretty awful. But from the outside, it's always looked, I think, to the young writer, because that's what I hear from them. Like I've had this smooth ascent that just was on the support arc for a long, long time. It was never smooth. It was always a struggle. It was all there were always many people telling me, you can't do that. This is going to destroy your career. 
uh, or they'll never build a career because of the way they're doing things. Uh, and you have to take that seriously to some extent, but when you keep hitting that wall, at some point you have to say, well, I'm going to write what I want to write. Uh, and if it's not perceived properly, that's just going to have to be the way it is. And the biggest one was something you just referenced, the cross-genre thing. Uh, somebody said quite a long time ago that I created the cross-genre novel. I don't know if that's true. I never set out to do it, but I do know that when I started doing it, it was a long, long time ago. Uh, then I started getting resistance from publishers. You know, a lot of publishers, not all of them, one of them right now are Way. Um, but a lot of publishers were to write a book about uh, somebody who worked in a foundry, then you've got to have foundry man novels for the rest of your career. They want you to be locked into something you can label and produce time after time, which is an underestimation of it. Uh, so I was, I can remember, started really all the way back with stuff like Whispers and and after I wrote Whispers, they insisted I go write a horror novel. I said, Whispers wasn't a horror novel, but I'll write you one if that's the only thing you buy from me. It's going to be a sort of different horror novel. And that when I delivered it, they said, this is too horrific for a horror novel. And it's not a blood fest or anything like that. But what really upset them was there were other elements to it. Sort of a police procedure was supernatural or seemed to be, it had a science fiction explanation. Uh, it was a story of two sisters and all of this, and that got me in trouble. And book after book, that was the case. So what I say to uh, writers is, you can't, you can go out and scope the market and then write zombie novel two thousand five hundred sixty-six, mm -hmm. or you can do what you're passionate about. But when you do what you're passionate about, it's probably going to be a little different, and that's where you're going to meet some of that resistance. But you have to be diplomatic. Don't uh, don't tell them you're an idiot, uh, because a lot of them are pretty smart about what they're publishing. But they get stuck in this rut, and if you're doing something different, they don't want to relate to that. They don't want to move with that. But you just have to persevere. Perseverance, since many times, is equal to talent. If you don't have perseverance, but you're enormously talented, you probably not have a long career. That's the same fact. That's excellent advice. And I agree with you completely. I think that you have to write from your heart, um, but also, you know, it's it's something that you have to do consider the market somewhat. Yeah, uh, as little as you possibly can consider it. But if you scope it and study it and decide what the public wants, they won't want that by the time you've written a novel. Changes too much. So it's, it always ends up being what fascinates you, what idea grips you. And if it grips you, it'll grip the reader one Mm -hmm. Dean, you have written everything from fantasy to science fiction, uh, horror, like you said, mystery, thrillers. Is there one subgenre that's harder to write than the others? Uh, you know, I've, I was, I've asked, been asked a variation of that question, not quite that way before. Uh, but I will say the thing that's harder in some ways uh, to really grip a reader is a novel that's psychological suspense, where a character may have a deteriorating sense of themselves, like deteriorating psychology, where it's all about 
inward fears, it's much easier to throw a really cool monster at the reader and have them be electrified. Uh, the psychological suspense is a little harder to pull off. Uh, another thing that's kind of harder to pull off, and I got in trouble for this too, but I love to do it, is salt a suspense novel with humor. Uh, so in novels like Life Expectancy, or in quite a few others, From the Corner Desire, One to Away from Heaven, I've done that. <clears throat> Sometimes I can remember when I delivered the second Christopher Snow novel, uh, Seize the Night, uh, the humor factor was so significant that my publisher almost was so angry he talked to me fully about it. He told my agent I had to get rid of a bunch of these funny moments in the book. I thought the funny moments in the book made the scary moments scarier. Uh, all I was able to do was tone down the ending a little bit. But we were at such odds about that book that I thought, I'm supposed to write three Christmas, and here comes the next one. And this is my new publisher. They published Fear Nothing, and now they're about to publish Seize the Night. If I write a third Christmas, which is going to be funny and suspenseful like the first one, I may have to get a new publisher after only three books. So that's why I moved on and wrote False Memory and a couple of others, thinking I would get back to Christmas, and I never had. And now I'm at a different publisher. Uh, so a lot of readers beat me up for that, but it wasn't my not wanting to write it. And I still think someday I might write it. Uh, but that's the kind of problem we're running into. That are the kind of things I find harder, the human psychological suspense. But you know, the harder it is, the more fun it is. Right? Sure. Uh, the easier it is, the more you become with it. And I think then the more bored the public. Yeah, I agree with you. And I certainly hope you do write that because we're looking forward to reading it. Um, so outlining is, uh, you know, a, a, a circumstance of a great discussion in, in writing. And there are plotters, there are pantsers. Now, I'm a little bit more like pants on fire. So I was very happy to hear that you're an organic writer. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your writing process? And are you excited when you're surprised by a character? Uh I started out, well, I started out when I could sell a novel on an outline at one point after I published it. So I'd write an outline, sell it, get a little money up front, tell it on the book, novel. Uh, but I began to find that stifling. And the thing that particularly got me upset was publishers would have read the outline. But when the book got written, there were all kinds of changes that occurred because I am an organic writer. So the delivered book, in my estimation, would be a lot better than the outline. But from the publisher's view, this isn't what we bought. Uh, after I hit that several times and I was frustrated, I finally said, I'm going to try to write something with outline. Um, and that first book was Strangers, which had an enormous cast. It was a half a quarter million words long or more. Uh, but I was able to keep all the storylines in my head and move back and forth. And I had more fun with that than I'd had the beginning before. And after that, I said, no more outline. I'll just come up with the premise and the characters that split that premise uh, and just begin and see where it goes. And that's the great thing about it is what you said, the surprise factor. Uh, because there's moments in every book uh, where you didn't see that coming. You get to a chapter, you think, you know, what's about to happen next. 
But if the characters have come alive and have gripped this story, they suddenly be typing it and some other thing starts to happen. And I've even had I pause myself and say, no, 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 you can't do that. that. That's going to be too far out there. But I've learned to just trust my instinct. Uh, the trust is actually what the characters are. Uh, telling me, get out of your stale stuff and listen to me. This is what I want to do. And a lot of uh, younger writers find that hard to understand. They say, well, you are creating that character. You're creating a story. So it's not as if these characters have free will. And I say, yes, it actually is in the strangest way. When they come fully alive, they do things that you didn't anticipate. But as they're starting to happen, you realize that has to happen because it's so within that character. And you don't know that character at the start as well as you do in ditch to manuscript. So if you were to plot out events, those events no longer match up to who the character has become. And I think that's where the character starts taking over. So I just begin with the premise. If it's a premise, it starts it instead of characters. Um, and then I look for the characters. To support that premise, because from that premise is going to come certain themes. And you, I like to think about what is this novel saying other than the plot? What is it about thematically? And then I look at the characters. What kind of character is this? Um, and uh, then as I get those characters, they have, they have a certain charisma. I have to think, I'm going to like hearing what this character has to say with fame. And then if that works, it works in the first 20 pages of manuscript. If the characters aren't working at that point, they either have to reconceive or just throw it away and come up with another idea. Uh, and that's the way I work, uh, grinding forward day by day. I do a lot of drafts at every page before moving on to the next one, uh, simply because I'm a potential obsessive compulsive maniac, and that's the only way I can do it. Um, so, uh, that way doesn't work for everybody, but it clearly is working. I'm just curious with that, do you ever have like a bunch of words that you kind of basically have to put aside because you've written yourself a different direction or do you just adapt as you go? Adapt as I go. I, there usually isn't much to put aside because I will go over a page and rewrite it 10 or 20 times or more before going to the next page. Then there aren't a lot of voice words or misdirection that have to come back and exercise. The thing there sometimes is, is something will evolve in the story that needs to have some preparation. I need to go back and plant something about a character. So you know, you're told previously he has this ability or whatever. Um, that is the most I tend to have to do. Uh, but um, when I get to the end of the chapter, I've gone over those pages over and over again. But then I print it out. When you print it out and look at it in front of you, rather than on a screen, you see things you didn't see on the screen. Then I pencil it up and do that. And do that usually with each part of the book, as well as each chapter, and gradually work at the end. The beauty of that is when I get to the end, I'm done. It isn't a first draft. It isn't something I have to go back to and think, oh, God. Now I got to go through this and make all this right. It's off the rails in various places. Um, some writers say to me, "But how do you stay? How do you keep the momentum?" In the strangest way, it doesn't affect the momentum of the storyline. In fact, what happens is, as you know, that when you're writing, 
there are moments when you can look ahead and you think, uh-oh, you see something that's coming that you've created some conflict, some moment where a character has to go here or there, and you don't know, how am I going to make that happen? How am I going to get those characters together? How am I going to get that character past that crisis? I, I haven't thought this through. Well, what's good about that slow approach page by page is I have found so many times that when I get to where I know that crisis is coming, although I think I haven't solved it, I have subconsciously. And I get there and I have sometimes two and three ways to go. So that's a beauty of the slowness. The subconscious is working on it at all times. And taking that slower approach certainly hasn't slowed down my volume. As you know, I've written a lot. So, but again, it works for me. It may not work. Well, Dean, my wife and I, we have six children. And uh, one of my sons, Ryan Jr., is autistic. So I was fascinated to learn uh, and read a little bit about how you and your wife created Canine Companions for Independence to provide service dogs to people with disabilities. And I just, I was wondering, where did where did that come from? How did that start? Well, well, we didn't actually create it, but we've become contributors to it for many, many years now. It was originally founded by Charles Schultz, and his wife, Jean, and it's become a national thing on campuses all over. There are a lot of... Uh, Good groups and some mediocre groups provide assistance dogs for people with severe disability. But canine companions is the gold standard, and uh, they're, they're quite amazing. I was, I was looking, you're always looking for characters you haven't written before uh, in uh, one way or another, so they're fresh. And I remember way back when I was writing Midnight, uh, I saw an article about uh, uh, canine companions, and uh, I thought, oh, I had this secondary character I wanted to have in Jeopardy. I thought it would be interesting if it was a character in a wheelchair with an assistance dog, living alone with the dog in a town where everything is going to hell. And that would raise his level of Jeopardy considerably. So I started researching all that. And he's a major main character, but he's a fairly significant one. And I wrote the whole thing. And not Novel came out, happened to be my first one that hit number one. And I got a letter from uh, the regional director of Canine Companion saying, We love this character and so forth. And then the paperback comes out, could you put a little notice in the back about Canine Companions that were real? And, uh, and here's our address. And I thought, I should have done that in hardcover. And then they said, well, Why don't you come see us at the San, it was that time the San Diego campus. Local California one is in Oceanside. And we were went that and we were totally taken. So amazing. So we've been involved with it for many years now. And uh, uh, and one thing they started doing a number of years ago was providing dogs to autistic children. And I can remember the first time we saw one of these, we went to a graduation of about 14 uh, people gotten your assistance dogs, and it takes two weeks living on campus uh, to learn to handle the dog. And in the case of this uh, this child who was autistic, it was a uh, the parents have to learn to handle the dog. And I saw this boy; they had film of they did film of people coming to the campus with the first day they're there, and they walk you through all their training. 
and they, they show this film at every graduation ceremony, which there's usually a couple of thousand on the bus. And they're very moving. And uh, we saw this boy who was so had severe behavioral problems. And his mother had to take care of him and had to take him with her where she went. And they showed us her going to the grocery store. She had to have the boy in the homes and almost with uh, like a leash because he was trying to grab things and so forth. And after two weeks with this dog, they showed them going through the supermarket again, and the boy was completely calm. Behavior totally changed. And throughout this graduation ceremony, the last couple of hours, and often the graduates on stage for extended period, um, this boy was petting his dog and was perfectly calm. And I thought, this is mysterious, strange, fascinating. And I have ever since wanted to write a character like that. And I did and devoted the mm-hmm. first book to that, Thomas and Mercy. Uh, and got to write a boy. And since then, because of our, our connection to canines, we've met quite a number of children like this and their families. And, uh, and it's just, uh, it, it, was, it was great to have fun writing about it because one thing you learn about a lot of autistic children is. There may be very bright indeed, but there's a disconnect with how they're able to interact with the world. And uh, I find that interesting and uh, what a challenge that is for the child and parents. So when the dog can make that difference, wow, that's really fascinating. Yeah, I absolutely love Devoted. I thought it was a brilliant novel and the point of views were very like on spot on. I felt like really connected with the young um, autistic boy as well as the dog, which became my favorite character. So um, so early early on in your career, Dean, um, you made a bold move and, and bought back um, a number of your novels. And was that to protect the brand that you had in mind? And, and how would you define your brand? In those days, I didn't think of myself as a brand. Okay. I thought of myself as an idiot who had gotten lucky. <laughs> it was, um, uh, I wasn't a bestseller yet, and I'd had all these science fiction novels, and frankly, most of them weren't any good. That's what I mostly read as a kid, mostly wanted to write when I first started writing. Then I drifted into suspense and a comic novel, and I found that that's, I started very soon thereafter moving to start blending because I've always read in multiple genres. And uh, so I looked at it, and I had a lot of six, number of suspense novels, a number of science fiction novels. I didn't want the science fiction out there anymore because uh, I knew that as long as that was in print, I would be called a science fiction writer. And I had stopped being that, and I didn't want to be it anymore. So we had to, my wife and I agreed, we couldn't afford this, but we agreed we had to get those rights back. In some cases, there, there were term licenses. In others, there, were, there weren't. The terms were much longer. Uh, and we just took it upon ourselves to where we could get it back at no charge if we did it. And then if we had to pay to get it back, we did. And often publishers, the book would almost have earned out its advance. In some cases, it would have earned royalty. But when I wanted to buy it back, they wanted them to pay them back what they had paid me as an advance. And I can remember so many writers saying, you're insane. You're paying what they paid you. You've done the book for nothing, and you're never going to put it back in the brand. And I, ne- I never thought about brand. I just thought, 
identity, essentially, is what I thought. I want this different identity, and this is the only way I'm going to get it. And then, as I started looking at suspense novels, there were some I thought, well, those I don't want to see in print again, because I was learning, and they're not up where I am now. But there were some that I thought really had value that I could put my name on that had been in the pen names. So we started buying those back as well. We had a scramble to to do this, and cut expenditures, and everything. But the story that every, I think, writer would like most about this is I had five books of the publisher that were under the same pen name, or four. I had four books of this publisher. I'd written five of it. And we went to that publisher, and they still had years to go on the license. And my agent uh, says, Dean would like to buy these back. And they were not any more really aggressively publishing those. And we were prepared to then say, no, it's not fine. Return to us what we paid you, and you can have them back. Instead, the publisher, in kind of snarky way, said, oh, he can have them back for nothing. They aren't worth anything, to use the yes word. Uh, and, uh, and I said, really? You're not going to? No, no, no. These, these, these are nothing. Nobody's going to want these novels anyway. So we have no intention of maintaining them in uh, the first of those was a book called Servants of Twilight. And I was on the brink of hitting the bestseller list, which we were beginning to see that this was going to happen. And not seeing that it was going to go as far as it But Servants of Twilight was the first of those books that he gave me back for nothing because it went And uh, it went to number one on the New York Times paperback list for six weeks and sold two million copies the first year. That was one of the most wonderful vengeances I've ever had against somebody who was snarky with me. And I didn't have to say a thing. I just knew it was a well aware. Wow, that's quite a story. I mean, it really is. Um, Dean, I think I speak for, for Kim and I both and people who will be watching this that we could talk with you forever. We don't want to keep you. Um, but I'm dying to know, uh, with Elsewhere set to hit bookstores, what is next for you? Uh, I've delivered a book called The Other Emily. Uh, which is very different from devoted and from elsewhere. Uh, and I'll just give you a little tweet thing about it. It's a fellow who, uh, uh, he's a writer, and he, two months of the year he comes back to California, lives in New York City. Two months of the year he comes back to New York Beach, California, where he has a little cottage. Uh, and we learn that he lived here with a woman he was in love with, and she disappeared 10 years ago. Uh, and it's always been believed she was one of the victims of a serial killer that killed 27 women on the coast. And she disappeared in the area that he was prowling in every time he was doing it. He has since been ended up in prison, but 14 of them, he's admitted 17 abductions and killings. 14 of them, the bodies have not been found. And he says he's mummified them and stored them away for revitalization whenever he gets out of prison, he's one day he'll be able to get out. And our Arlie thinks this insane person, may that may be where her body is. He just wants to get her back. And But it's something he knows that never will happen, but he goes to visit this killer in prison. This is all right at the beginning. He comes back to California, and he goes out to dinner, 
and sitting at the bar, this woman he hasn't seen in 10 years. And he goes up to sit beside her and he says, where have you been? And she looks at him and says, that's a, that's a stupid pickup line for a writer as successful as you are. Where have you been all my life? He said, I didn't say all my life. Where have you been in years? But he realizes pretty quickly, this can't be her because she looks 25 and she's now 35. But there is something about her because she starts misleading him. She starts telling him things. And that, that all takes place in the first few couple of chapters. I had enormous fun with it. It's very different. It's sort of a retelling of the Orpheus legend about uh, Orpheus's journey into afterlife, bringing uh, Eurydice back. Uh, but it's very modern kind of version. So that one's done. I've almost finished another one. I'm working on nameless stories. I had six of those that Amazon original stories did. And they asked me to do six more. And I'm halfway through that. So elsewhere is your new one. Now I think I speak for, for readers in general when I say that uh, the other Emily sounds fan- fantastic. I cannot wait to get my hands on that one, too. So, hey, thank you, Dean, for, for coming on and being our first big guest for Thriller Talk. Well. Oh. Thanks for having me. I'll be there anytime. It's been an absolute pleasure, Dean. Thank you kindly. Thank you. Take care.